The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and this is a very special edition of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. As many of you may know, this uh, program was probably on the verge of not occurring today because we have been hit by a cataclysmic hurricane and uh, we are in the middle of uh, of an area of, of massive uh, disturbance and destruction. We are fortunately starting to dig our way out of it and things are moving along very fast, but there is sort of a very odd and almost an eerie conflation of events that are occurring right now. First of all, we are in the aftermath of sort of the biggest storm that's hit this area in the northeastern United States in decades. Uh, we're getting out of that. This is also Halloween night, and we are uh, we had originally planned to give you a uh, presentation on witchcraft, which we are going to proceed with, but it's just a very, very eerie uh, agglomeration of events that sort of put us in this very unique position. And I guess for people in this immediate area, I guess I, I want to pe- get people out of this very sort of depressing mode that we're into right now, although it is turning, beginning to turn into a favorable light. And uh, I want to get back into archaeology that is related to witchcraft and to spirituality. And the presentation is about uh, some witchcraft and discoveries of the Mesolithic period, Middle Stone Age period in the UK. Uh, my very special guest today is Ms. Jackie, Dr. Jackie Wood, who is an archaeologist and a director of the Saviok Water Archaeology Project in Cornwall, Britain, where she also runs an archaeological field school. Uh, Dr. Wood has been researching the practical aspects of daily life in prehistoric Europe for the past 30 years. She regular, regularly appears on various archaeological TV programs in the UK. Uh, 
Most recently, she participated on a Time Team special program on the Mesolithic period, which is scheduled to be broadcast in the new year. Dr. Wood has written an article uh, called Archaeology Experiences Spirituality about the witchcraft pits from the Proceedings of the World Archaeology Congress. She has also published two books about prehistoric foods, prehistoric, one entitled Prehistoric Cooking and another entitled Tasting the Past, Recipes from the Stone Age to the Present. Dr. Wood was on the National Education Committee of the Council for British Archaeology, and it is my very special pleasure to welcome Dr. Wood to the program. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So why don't you get us started and tell us a little bit about these very amazing pits that have uncovered some very unique finds related to spirituality spirituality and possibly something of the macabre, if I might might be so bold as to project that. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on how you started on this project and how you're continuing on doing it? Okay. Well, um, about 12 years ago, we've been excavating um, a Mesolithic or a Stone Age uh, hunting camp on the edge of a river. And uh, we're so it's a marshy area by the by the river, so we're we're excavating at this marsh grasses, taking it off uh, to find the hunting camp, and we came across these pits. And um, the first one we came across was this rectangular north-south aligned pit, and it seems like it had been lined with swan feathers. So it's like somebody had skinned the, the, the front, the breast feathers of a, of a swan, lined the pit with it, and then put different kind of bird feathers and different kind of sort of claws and beaks from other birds in it. And we didn't think much of it. We thought it, just, it was just curious. But um, anyway, as, as we carried on excavating the Stone Age camp and came across more. Um, then we found a round one, which um, was a circular, same swan feather lining, and two magpie birds had been put either side of it. And between that, 55 eggs, um, seven of them with baby chicks ready to hatch in it. And we got a radiocarbon date for that pit, and it's uh, 1640s A.D., uh, which is the time of the Civil War in Cornwall, where the Puritans were um, uh, waging war on the uh, Catholic uh, King Charles. Um, anyway, these were carried on, we were sort of excavating, and then we found another pit, which was dated 100 years later. Um, and this one was actually lined with black cat fur. So they skinned the cat, lined the pit with the fur of the cat, and then put 22 eggs every single one with a baby chick ready to hatch in it, and then cat claws, cat teeth, and cat whiskers. Um, so, so, so we've moved from feather pits to, 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 to cat pits. But the thing is, each of these pits have a tiny little pile of stones in them, and we've analyzed them, and they come from the geology about 15 miles away. So it's not some sort of strange thing happening in one little valley, because each pit has got these little stones in it. And we've got over over 40 pits now, over the last um, sort of 12 years. Um, but we started um, thinking, uh, it, it got into the media and the Times uh, newspaper did a whole article and we got lots of interest in it in the media. But we couldn't find anything in any archive record of anything like this, in historical record of anybody making pits like this. And um, somebody that was actually writing a book on Cornish witchcraft practices in the 17th century, um, he'd been writing this book for 10 years, and he'd never read anything about, about these practices. So he started thinking, well, maybe it's still going on, because uh, it, you, know, you only start 
um, telling people about things when they stop happening. You know, you say, my grandmother's day, we used to do such a thing, and uh, and then it gets written about. But if it's still a secret, it wouldn't be written. Um, and then and then we were astonished by the, the pit that we found later, which was a dog pit. They'd skin the dog, line the pit with the dog pelt, and then put the body of the dog on top of the fur, and between the back legs of the dog was the bottom jaw of a, pit, of a pig. So it's nothing sort of like, my well, nobody's burying pets here. This is really quite sort of extraordinary. Anyway, this one, we got a radiocarbon date for it, and it was post-1950. So So you have this irregularity here. I guess I want to go back as an archaeologist. Let's go back to the Mesolithic site, if we could. What were the the diagnostic artifacts of the Mesolithic period in this particular area? And why don't you tell us, was was this sort of the edges of a floodplain? Was it like a peaty, marshy kind of an area that had swamp grasses? in it, and what drew your attention to the actual Mesolithic component of it? Well, the Mesolithic, uh, what it was, in the Mesolithic, it was on the bend of a river between two shallow lakes, uh, right. which was actually basically prime real estate for, for hunter-gatherers' camps. And we found all the stakeholders of the, of the temporary camps um, for the houses and lots of microliths, so sort of flints, sort of um, arrowheads, uh, embedded into the floor. So we, that's clearly dating the Mesolithic. But these pits have been dug into it through the top of it. So it's only because we were, we were actually excavating Mesolithic um, camps that we came across these things, because there were the, the marshy grasses were growing over the top of this area, this wet area by the river. So, um, so because if you want to actually hide a pit and you, 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 you dig it into, into dry ground, there's always an impression. You can always see a dip or a raised bit. But if you actually dig a pit into marsh grasses and then put the grasses back on, it disappears. So it sort of keeps it absolutely secret. I see what you're saying. But, but so the original site was on the bend of a river. Now, was it close to the coast? Was it uh, near the estuary or was it farther upstream? Or how, how was it set? Yeah, it's about sort of five miles from the estuary. It's deep inland. It's a sort of, you know, really sort of right in the middle of the county. So it's a terrestrial, it's a terrestrial river and, yeah. and it probably will have created a series of, of overflow basins, which I, I assume is where the Mesolithic people actually live. Now, was your Mesolithic component pretty major? Oh yeah, yeah. It's just quite a sort of significant hunting camp basically, because it was access with the two shallow lakes. They've got access from there onto the estuary and then out to sea. So, so basically, it's a very, very typical um, site for a Mesolithic camp. Sure, it's, it's, a, it's a location where you have yeah. a lot of floral and faunal resources and Absolutely. a lot of potential for subsistence resources, which you find all over in, in, in that part of your, 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 your world. And I can see that. So now let's get back into into the more in I, I don't want to say interesting because I'm in uh, my my yeah. own my well, own focus extent. No, fascinating. Yeah, right. Spiritually <laughs> fascinating, if you will. And then you get all these. Uh, then tell us about that. So, so the uh, the excavation is superposed into the older deposit, correct? That's right. That's right. But as part of it, we have um, moving from the Mesolithic era, we have a, a Neolithic ritual, a sort of votive pool. Um, dated from the Stone Age, moving on a little bit from, from the Mesolithic. Um, and we've got a, a pool um, that has actually had votive offerings put into it, cut into this area. And in that pool, we've got 
over 128 textile strips, pins, some with gold heads on, um, uh, human hair, human fingernail pairings, heather branches, cherry stones, leather shoe parts, and a bit of a cauldron. And, and this is all Neolithic? In, this is Neolithic? No, this, this, is, this is all um, sort of medieval to 17th century. Ah, okay, okay, okay. The, the I thought I heard, the pits, basically. I see what you're saying. Okay, so, and this is all sort of, ex, sort of like a palimpsest of excavation, one on top of the other, and then... Absolutely. Okay, and so this is starting to, uh, to create a very sort of an intriguing uh, lateral distribution of archaeological features all over the place. And, Definitely. Uh, well, and, well, and, a, a curious thing about the pits is we've got over sort of 40, but uh, a third of them have been emptied in antiquity. So if someone's gone back to the pits, and taken the contents out and just take a few traces of feathers or fur or something in the bottom to see what was in there originally. But they've actually gone back and taken the contents out. Now, that's extraordinary. So it's, it's a case of, well, did, did, this, did this mean that sort of basically it did what it was supposed to do and then you emptied the contents? I don't know. But, but they're definitely a third of them have been emptied by the people who <laughs> did it. And how well, they found yeah. This is very fascinating, and we will get back to this discussion with uh, with Dr. Jackie Wood after these words. We'll be continuing with our discussion of this unique transition from a Mesolithic archaeological site to a med- medieval quasi-mysterious um, uh, archaeological phen- phenomenon right after these words. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a homeowner who's trying to save on energy bills and go green at the same time? Tune into Energy Saving in the Home, brought to you by 521 Compressor Saver and Home Energy Consultants with host Gary Parr and Dennis Seltzer. They have saved homeowners just like you as much as 65% on energy bills through energy efficiency practices. You'll learn about conservation, products, and services to reduce energy consumption and save you money. Be sure to listen to Energy Saving in the Home, live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. This is Joe Schuldenrein with Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, and my very special guest on this uh, eerie Halloween night, especially in light of our um, cataclysmic hurricane here in the northeastern U.S., is Dr. Jackie Wood, who is a uh, British archaeologist who has found some very phenomenal uh, medieval and subsequent uh, archaeological features or archaeological findings in, in a very well-preserved context that uh, date back to the past four or five hundred years, but which were originally found because the excavators had identified a mesolithic Lithic or Middle Stone Age site. Now, Dr. Wood, you had told me that in addition to the Mesolithic component, which was very extensive, you're also finding Neolithic and you're finding Bronze Age and some Iron Age um, artifacts and evidence of human uh, subsistence and activity. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those transitional periods uh, going from the Bronze Age, from the Neolithic rather into the Bronze and Iron Age, and then let's get into the medieval stuff. built with a with a spring fills up fills up because this whole site this whole area which is why we've got such amazing preservation of the contents of the pit is a spring line underneath it and a peat bank so it's constantly wet and this neolithic pool um has a drain that goes off from it uh, that enters the stream and then next to it is a mirror image of the same pool which only fills in midwinter so it becomes like a spring summer um, pool and a winter one, and it's dated to the, ne- to the Neolithic. We've actually found leaf arrowheads um, in the area and lots of firecrack stones, which is obviously indicating some kind of cooking practice, which is something I do uh, in, in my other sort of uh, uh, speciality. Um, so basically, we've got a so we've got a Neolithic area like that, and then we move on to the next area. It's a Bronze Age metalworking site, and we've got. Um, pits that have been dug in into the clay platform and filled with beach sand, very, very fine beach sand, and capped with a clay um, plug so it didn't wash away. And that's the sort of sand that you do metal casting with. And we've had uh, next to that is a bowl furnace and a flue intact and lots of different areas with pits uh, for washing and processing ore. And what's quite interesting is next to the bowl furnace where it's been excavated out of this um, it's like we've got an area where lots of people have come over different periods and actually found it useful. And this metalworking area is the latest phase. And then, then the whole thing is sealed um, in the in the um, Iron Age by um, a cut above above the the field. So somebody's made a cutting for obviously some roundhouses in the Iron Age, and they've spread all the sort of the the waste sort of subsoil over the site and sealed it. So it's, um, it's an amazing sequence of events, and it's a south-facing um, slope, and the water is constant. In fact, this valley is today called Green Bottom because it's always green. Even in the major drought years, it's always green. 
Um, so and actually, people still come here for the, for the water healers and um, homeopaths who come. They will only drink the water from this valley, and they bring all these bottles every every couple of weeks and fill them up, and that's all they drink. So it's still a special place, obviously. <laughs> Oh yeah, so you have you have basically over five thousand years of use by differing populations for different reasons because of this, this central role of the spring, and yeah. each period seems to have its own sort of diagnostic use of the area depending on the culture and depending on the use of the landscape, which is phenomenal. Right. I mean, that's an amazing thing in and of itself, and you're seeing sort of the breakdown of, of individual subsistence patterns uh, associated with each period, so that's phenomenal. So take us now into this very, very unique medieval situation where obviously the preservation is optimal because this is all deoxygenated landscapes and the, uh, the, the peats keep everything moist and well preserved so tell us tell us in detail if you would about these very very unique uh, medieval pits um, well I mean the thing with the pits is they're, they're either north south or east west aligned um, rectangles apart from the one that we've got uh, I mentioned before which is the round one with the magpies and the eggs in it but the extraordinary thing is that they seem, people seem to have gone back to them and empty, emptied so many of them a third of them have been emptied in antiquity um, and we had another pit, which is an east-west-aligned one, and that one is almost like a dual-purpose pit because they seem to be either lined with um, sort of um, pelts of animals or birds and feathers. Uh, but this one, it's got a swan wing in one half of it, a disc of iron halfway up, and then on the other side of it, it's got uh, what looks like sort of young fox fur. So it's actually a fur and a feather one. And and so what do you make what do you make of this? Sorry? What do you make of this? Why uh what what does the well, lining have to do with it? The, the thing is, it's 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 all you can say it's an unknown belief system because there's nothing written about it. And I mean I felt when we were first excavating and we found the one um from uh, the nineteen fifties but, um, because there was nothing written in any archaeological record, historical record, uh, or folklore, um, it was almost like I felt like I was in the, in, on the Da Vinci Code or something. Some archaeologists find secret sect no one knew about before, um, just by pure chance, because they're following this Stone Age sort of um, platform. Because these, I, I'm absolutely sure it's still going on somewhere in Cornwall, and whoever they're doing it are very, very secret. And there's not anything written on it. If you think it's 350 years worth of people putting these uh, pits in, obviously they must think they work, or they wouldn't keep doing it. So, so tell us about the birds and the eggs, and, and what was that about? Yeah, the birds. I mean, the thing with the, the, the birds, it's it's... There's, like I say, the skin of the swan. Now, I mean, in Britain, um, killing the swan has been illegal. All the swans belong to the Queen uh, since the 11th century. So that's a dangerous thing to be doing because you could be prosecuted for killing a swan. But this, this, this killed the swan lined it with a, with a pelt of the swan. So it's all this beautiful white fur, sort of feathery sort of lining. And then they put eggs inside. And the eggs have all got baby chicks ready to hatch in them, and we've got perfect preservation of that. The, the actual shell part of the egg is gone, but the membrane and the, the little, little bird inside of its feathers are perfectly intact. And one of them has got 55 eggs in, 
from bantam, that small chicken, to duck egg size. Well, that's quite a commitment to a community. And we had a, we had a pollen analysis done of um, some of the actual soil underneath on that particular one, and it looked like it was put into the ground sometime in sort of late autumn, sort of harvest time. But we had actually this, this little valley where, where these pits were used to be a little hamlet. And there was a mill and a few farmhouses. And then when the railway came through in 1850 down the other side of the valley, they cut off the water supply to the mill. So the valley, the hamlet just sort of died out. So we've had archivists looking at the different people that lived in these houses and they've all been different. So it's not like some strange thing that one odd family did. Um, and also we've got this link with every single pit has got a pile of these tiny stones in them that are being analysed as coming from the coast, which is 15 miles away. So there's some link with the coast. So it makes you think that this is actually quite a wide distribution of, of pits around the county. And this is what we've got is, is just one part of it. And because it's in the wetlands, nobody digs the wetlands. Um, farmers tend it off so the animals don't go to it. You don't have pasture it. You certainly don't excavate it if you can help it. So... Every time I look in a valley in Cornwall and I see lots of marshy grasses, you think, oh, I wonder if there's any pits in there. And you can't do geophysics for it because it's wet, so you can't actually find them. Without you can't the find them, right, right, right. So let me ask you, are the hamlets contemporaneous with the pits? Can you establish a, a chronological correlation between the emergence of the hamlets uh, and, and the pits themselves, or does one precede the other? How does it work? Well, they, the, the, the pits precede the hamlets, definitely. Definitely, because you know, we and we. I mean, the thing is, we we've only got so many dates for it because we're sort of, you know, we're self-funding our excavation, and Lady Carbon is quite expensive. So, but we think that there's a field next to this this area, and we think possibly that the, the pits that we've got over this Mesolithic camp are actually the overflow. We think there's probably a lot more. So, when we can get dates for all of them. Who knows what dates would come up? Can, can you speculate as to why those rocks were brought in so far away? Is there is that a tradition, or do you think it's a religious thing, or how how would you explain it? And and well, do the well, do, there is, do, at, there yeah, is actually a, a place fifteen miles away called Swan Pool, and we analysed the, the the stones. They're really tiny pebbles, but they've got flint nodules in them. And in Cornwall, in the geology of Cornwall, the flint is always on the coast; it's never inland. So basically, we've looked at Swampool Beach, and there's a lake next to it, which actually still has swans on it today. And the stones off the gravel of the, the lake is exactly the same as the stones. So we're thinking maybe that was the centre of this belief system, or whatever it was, and maybe people had to take some stones from the actual swamp pool and link it to their own little pits in their own valleys when they went home. It's just an idea. We're just guessing. <laughs> Would would you think that because of the universal utility of the flint as 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 sort of the magic stone for prehistory, if you will, uh, there seem there might be a connection between the uh, the use of the flint and its its uh, sort of over all encompassing uh, powerful utility that would make it such a such a religious item? Is that is that something that no, you guys can see? I don't, no? I don't think so, because, because they're really tiny, tiny little gravels, like really small gravels, not, like, not big enough to make, make anything. You know? Right. So, like, so it just does seem to be that these are somehow linking our pits with Swampool Beach, 15 miles away. So, I mean, so maybe there's... It, if, it, if, it, so, if it is at centre, they, they have to feel some link with Swampool for some reason. 
Ah, okay. So that would be the connection there. And, yeah. And, and it's but a connection. <laughs> right. No, no, clearly. But I mean, it's a connection that would seem to have persisted for quite some time, right? Well, 350 years. Yes. It's a lot yeah, of generations. That's quite something, and nobody has speculated on this. And they, again, you say there's no written documentation for any of these connections. It's just every basically inferential, right? Absolutely. You see, the only ones that, that because of, the only ones that have ever been excavated in Europe, as far as we know, not just Britain, because we, I, you know, I, I lecture at international conferences, and we've had such a huge media. Uh, interest in it. It's in the, been in the Spiegel in Germany, it's been on sites in Denmark um, the, uh, magazines, it's been on Discovery Channel Canada TV did a bit about it. It's just been worldwide and no one's come back with anything. So, no one's come back with anything. And on that note, we're going to take <laughs> another break and then we are going to talk about the evolution of these pits and their contents uh, from the medieval period onward and ask Dr. Wood if she's starting to see some kind of a connection between the pits themselves and the sort of emerging significance of that through time. We'll be back after these words. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America Variety Channel presents a program like no other for those in the field and interested in the field of security and training. On America's front lines of crime and war with Victory Defense Consulting, hosted by J.J. Sutton. Here, listeners are learning about tactical skills and practices that support efficient, smarter, and more enduring skills. You will receive the most up-to-date information about the security and training industry with detailed discussions and select special guests each week. Tune in to On America's Front Lines of Crime and War, Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Michelle Core Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hoffman Connection for inspiration, a life of passion and purpose. Hosts Raz and Grossi and Ed McLoon will bring you ways to remove the blocks in your life that are holding you back. Along with their guest experts, Raz and Ed will use their experience and expertise to help you learn to get closer to what matters to you most. And by doing so, improve your life and the lives of others. The Hoffman Connection can be heard live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back here in our studios in New York City. This is our post-Hurricane Sandy and Halloween special program with uh, Dr. Jackie Wood, an archaeologist from Cornwall in the United Kingdom. And we are discussing this very, very unique series of medieval archaeological features that are excavated into what was originally identified as a Mesolithic or Middle Stone Age site in, in southern Britain, and um, Dr. Uh, Wood is telling us that there are these very, very beautifully preserved uh, pits that are lined with swan feathers and bird feathers and preserve the remnants of a variety of different types of birds and, and, and eggs that uh, have given rise to a tradition that has gone on for over 350 years since the medieval period. And I, uh, we have speculated to some degree that these are all sort of, uh, while they're very mysterious and intriguing, they're also sort of sending off a very positive vibe in the sense that uh, the springs are sort of a curative agency, if you will, for this part of the world. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the changing nature of the pits and their contents through time from the medieval period and then take us up into the modern period as as these pits have changed and their contents have changed and, and what the interpretations are. Yeah, well, the, the original pits seem to be all bird pits. You know, they've got different brown birds, have got cygnets, young swans, swan lines, all feather, feather pits. Um, and then they seem to move on into the animal pits. But the first animal pit date we've got is a hundred years after the swan pits of 1740s, and that's the cat pit. And then next to that, we've got um, a pig pit. And this this pit is actually lined with pig pig fur, and then a layer of organic matter between two, some kind of herbs it must have been. And in that are piglet teeth and dog teeth, and then another layer of pig fur, and then a, a piece of quartz, white quartz, that's been shaped like a sort of almost like a teardrop that's been placed in the middle. Um, and they're all sort of very meticulous and very detailed. And then each pit has uh, not only these little stones that come from this um, beach 15 miles away um, from Swampool, but also they have this um, very sort of crystally sand that's sprinkled over the top of the of all the, the contents. And, and that's the contents from 350 years ago to, to quite recently. They're all the same. They've all got the same contents. So you can know there's some kind of line of people putting these in over the generations. Um, but the latest pit that we, we excavated uh, was lined with goat fur, and it was two, two kinds of goats. There was a brown goat and a black goat, and it had been laid in, in like a pattern all around the outside. And then the legs of the goat had been put in the bottom. And then right at the base of that was the, the head of the goat, but underneath the goat was... Um, a piece of plastic and round the neck was orange baler twine. Huh. Now, <laughs> now, orange baler twine wasn't invented until the 1960s and it didn't come to Cornwall until 1970 because it didn't fit in the, the modern sort of balers for the hay. So we've got a pit from 1970, but with the same 
listening sound, the same stained chintrompal in the same sort of sequence of events. So, um, and the extraordinary thing is that when you put the rushes, when they put rushes back on, they disappear. So you just can't see mm. them. And I had, I had some students go into a field next to, to, um, to the pits and say, right, okay, dig a pit shape just the same as these, line it with some ferns, push it back, and see if I can find it. And they, they did it, and I went in, and, and they said, I said, well, where is it? You know, I was standing right next to it, and you just couldn't see it. Because once you put the rushes back, it disappears. It disappears. Um, so let, let me ask you a question here. Yeah. So one of the one of the phenomenon that, that we're seeing here that based on your narrative is that every either every century or every couple of decades, you have a different animal or a different yeah. species that that has taken over and has become the central component of the pit. Is there any kind of a connection between that specific animal, say you're going from birds to cats to pigs, is there any kind of significance here in, in the chronology of Cornwall or in the chronology of, 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 of uh, animal life, changing animal successions in the area? Has anybody speculated on that? Um, I really can't see any significance at all. And obviously it's very significant to the people who are in the pits in, but we just can't work it out because they, they just seem so random. And, and the way they're placed as well, because so many of them have been excavated, like they've gone back and taken the contents out of a third of these pits. Sure. How, yeah. how did they find them? Because right. once you put the rushes back, you can't, you can't find them. <laughs> so <laughs> unless you put markers on, that defeats the object of hiding them. So and and they're so randomly placed. It's not like they're in a line, three paces in, two paces back with a pit. They're all really random, and they seem to be clustered in in groups of three and groups of two. The pits are actually joined up in little groups. So it always seems like there's two or three pits put together. So so another one of the logical. I, I'm just speculating here on 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 sort of an ethnoarchaeology type of an approach that one might have. What about interviewing long-term residents of Cornwall who have traced their families there for several hundred years? Might they have some additional insights into it? I mean, might they they know some information or sit on some information that might be relevant? Either either well, myths or it, it, if they do, they're not telling us because I've given talks <laughs> all over the county on this and 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 asked about it, and there's been on lots of the TV local TV programs about it, and no one's come up with anything. <laughs> Nothing at all, so, huh? No. <laughs> That's interesting. That is phenomenal. Now the sands that were buried are the, is the sand local because we know that the the nodules and the pea gravels are coming from from fifteen miles away. What about the sands themselves? Well, well this crystalline sand it's almost like it's got um, amethysts in it. You know, because there's lots of uh, minerals in Cornwall, and and it's almost like it's um, uh, quartz crystals and, and amethyst, and it's actually crushed into this, this sort of glistening lilac coloured sand. And I have no idea where that comes from. Um, and but when you're excavating the pits in the sunshine, it sparkles. It's really amazing. It's like it's all glittery um, from this. So <laughs> whether they actually crush crystals themselves and put it on purposely, but I've not actually seen that kind of sand in the geology in Cornwall before. Right, of course. Now you would speculate that the latest burials, which you've dated to the plastics in the 1970s, that some yeah. of those people might still be around. They must be, uh, they must be surely. Yeah. And, and, but they're not talking. <laughs> no, because he's <laughs> not talking. 
Because the thing is, it seems to be a belief system that, you know, unless you're born to it, you, you don't find out about it because there's nothing written about it. And it's like a lot of the, the modern people that are sort of wick, into the Wiccan sort of religion today, um, they've revived it from books over the last 20 or 30 years and then used a bit of some intuition. But I don't think the difference with these pits and this belief system is it seems to be inherited and, and it's still very, very secret. So there's nothing written about them. So unless you're born to it, you're not going to find out about it. Are you finding any parallels looking into the literature, not of this particular area, but are there themes like this in, uh, say, local or regional or even foreign traditions of witchcraft through the generations? Is there any type of a theme that is parallel to this, if not archaeologically, then certainly in terms of, of ethnography and in terms of ethnic traditions? Well, not not in the pits, no. I mean, there are obviously witch bottles. That's the thing they find in the archaeology, which are bottles which have, have uh, sort of pins and human hair and usually... Of um, course, right. urine in it, you know, witch bottles. They're, they're quite a sort of common thing found in the archaeology. But these pits don't seem to be found anywhere, you know. So they're, where they are, they're hidden. And there's I mean, no parallels in... There's no parallels anywhere else in the UK, or for that nope. matter, on, on the continent. No, no, because I lecture all over Europe, and um, and we, like I say, we've had huge media coverage throughout Europe, and no. <laughs> Let me ask you about the response that you get from various audiences. Is anybody actually saying, you know, we found something like this in, in say, Normandy, or we found something like this in southern France, or nobody has come up with anything like that? No, not at all. I mean, when we first uh, had the whole media thing with the Times, um, we had an article in Fortune Times, and uh, we had all the um, leaders of the juries, Wiccans, and sort of um, dowsing people in Cornwall, and all these groups. They, they wanted to come have a look at it. So I went in the evening, and they came, and they looked at the pits, and I had all the finds sort of um, in the workshop and showed them everything and said, right, okay, what do you think? And they're just totally blank faces, no idea. Really, no, no, or no. If, if they know anything, they're not letting it on. That's for no, sure. That's <laughs> now, people in Cornwall are a bit unique, from what I understand. That's that's true. They have a very distinctive. There are distinctive personalities in, in in that part of the UK. That's isn't that correct? I mean, I've heard. Yeah, you've well, heard... It does, it, you, if if you're anybody in Britain and they say, oh, which is a magical county, they'll always say Cornwall. It just right. has this name for being a magical place. The only one in Britain that's magical is Cornwall, so maybe right. this is the origin of it. <laughs> it could could certainly be some kind of a connection to that. Yeah, uh, that, definitely. Would, that would seem fairly logical. And and so, after all these years, you're still... And, and when did you first uh, uncover this? Oh, well, 12 years ago, so we're still going. There's a huge area. We've got about six. We haven't actually entered yet because we've had such um, bad weather. We, um, we Last summer was so so wet, we haven't excavated and we've got to dry out a bit. So there's six more pits that we don't know what's in them yet. Yeah. And so do, do you ex excavate these seasonally, and how is it, how is it supported? Yeah, we have to, we have it... to wait till it really dries out um, it, in, in the summer we excavate them. So, um, so this summer, was just the area where the pits were, which is so flooded because of such a lot of rain, um, that we just had to leave them. And we had a National Geographic did a documentary on the pits, 
uh, in the spring, and they were hoping we could excavate uh, one of the pits on camera, and uh, we couldn't, so... <laughs> oh, they couldn't do <laughs> it? Wet. Sorry? Ah, okay, because they couldn't do it because it was too moist. Oh, they, they did the documentary, but um, but they didn't. Um, they, didn't they couldn't uh, see a pit excavated, you know, sort of uh, in real time because it was too wet. And now, are you able to do? A, can you drain any of the uh, excavation areas with sump pumps, or or you have to just uh, depend on the you natural? Just, you have to drive because types. because the, the pits are surrounded by this clay platform, which is from the Mesolithic, and basically it, it can damage the clay if you walk on it too much. So you just basically have to be patient and, and wait till it dries out, and then you can go and do it. But uh, we're planning that we're going to be digging here for many many years. And how is this sponsored? Who sponsors the excavations? Well, it's self-funded. Basically, the field school um, pays for it, and we have uh, I have uh, lots of uh, professionals around Europe that uh, do things for free for me because they like like what my work that I do. So we get radi- we, well, we don't get radiocarbon dating free, but uh, we get sort of geophysics free and pollen analysis and uh, expert analysis of, of the finds. Um, and, and basically, I run a field school, so students from different universities come um, to, to do, do their excavation techniques for their um, exams. But, but uh, people come from all over the world, um, America, Canada, Australia, to do a big holiday. And they don't need to have any experience at all because we teach them, and they can just um, come and sort of excavate around the... Because uh, we've got so many different areas on the site, not just the pits. And um, we teach them how, how, to, how to dig, and they... Uh, Get to get to do some hands-on archaeology, and that funds it basically. Right, and so we'll be back with our final segment on the magical uh, animal pits of Cornwall, for lack of a better term, after these messages. <laughs> Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses, while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. This is the final segment of our special uh, holiday um, post-Sandy um, October 31st Halloween program uh, on witches, witchcraft, and very, very unique animal pits that were found in a Middle Stone Age site and excavated over the course of 12 years by Dr. Jackie Wood, who is an archaeologist and a director of the Savikok Water Archaeology Project in Cornwall, Britain. Uh, and we were talking during the break about the, um, no, the, the concept that was generated by King James, uh, at, at, uh, during the 17th, 17th century, I believe, uh, or 16th century. Um, yeah, right. And, and it was called the King's War on the Witches. And it looks like the witches won, I think. Why don't you tell us a little bit uh, of your perspective on what all this means and what the succession of, of animal pits may, may mean in terms of symbolism, witchcraft, and, and just sort of a general perspective? Because you've been looking at this for well over a decade. Why don't you give us sort of a state of the art assessment? Well, I mean, Obviously, um, without somebody coming to tell us exactly what the pits are for, all we can do is say that they're, they're an unknown belief system. Um, but, it's, but the thing is, it's, it's like these pits are giving us a, a really brief insight into some people's belief system. It's very private and very secret. And when you think about sort of witches, we think about sort of people, you know, going out sort of, uh, you know, sort of being sort of uh, wearing sort of uh, hats and mm-hmm. like we have today, sort of like the, the modern witchy thoughts. Um, of course. This, this, seems, this seems to be a very sort of private uh, belief. And obviously people have been putting these pits in the sky for 350 years at least, probably up more when we get more dates. Um, so they must really have believed that whatever they were doing by putting these pits in was actually working, or obviously they wouldn't keep on doing it. And as we've got pits going from the 1640s to the 1970s, and they're all so meticulous and detailed, and each pit is very different, and they're grouped in little groups, that, that basically I feel that they, they're perhaps spells for fertility, and that's why we've got the eggs in there, and, um, and for, for protection, maybe, um, sort of, you know, sort of, but they're not sort of ill-wishing. There's no sort of, the valley feels so good. I mean, people, all these healers come to the water still because the energy is um, so good here. And people come and they sort of sit in the, in the valley and they just think it's such an amazing feel to the place. So there's no sort of malicious sort of witchy ill-wishing going on here. It's just a very personal, private belief of some people that are still keeping it secret. I probably wish I hadn't actually excavated them. But but the fact is that, you know, because we've got nothing written about it, and they're obviously not putting uh, pits in the valley now since, since I've been uh, excavating them, they're obviously doing them somewhere else. I'm sure they're still going on. Um, and I'm sure that... Um, They'll keep it a secret because obviously if you really believe in something, it's not the sort of thing you want to tell everybody about. 
Maybe maybe That's true. maybe it didn't work if people know. <laughs> That's true. Mean? So so there may have been a tradition of a sworn code of silence here. I think there has to be because I mean, like I said, this this guy was writing a book on 17th century witchcraft practices, and he was writing it. He's a curator of a museum in Sussex, and he's been writing it for ten years, and he had read every single archive record on witch practices and every single folklore reference, and there's nothing about these kind of pits. So, you know, there's, uh, and, and like I say, over the years when we were excavating them, they kept saying, well, perhaps it's still going on because, you know, um, why is there no records about it? Because it's only when p- people stop doing things that you say, oh, of in course. my grandmother's day, they used to do such and such a thing. And then it becomes written down and somebody has its folklore and it's a tradition. But if it's still a very important and very special belief, then you're not going to tell anybody about it. Well, um, one of the concepts that you brought on that that I think is very fascinating is is the fertility concept, which obviously would have been generated by the extensive uh, presence of these eggs. Do that? Does that carry on well through uh, the earlier and into the middle and later pits? Yes. Yeah. I mean, some pits we've got one pit that's just got one egg in it. Um, and then we've got others with, with lots of eggs in them, you know, so there, there does seem to be quite a few with eggs, but they all seem to have baby chicks in them. Now, that's quite an investment, because if you've got the 1640s pit where you've got 55 eggs, all with baby chicks in, I mean, that's 55 hens that you could be getting eggs off or chickens you could have in the pot, so that's, a, that's, a, that's quite a big gift to give a, a chick ready to hatch, and as you said, into the ground. Isn't it? So it's quite a, it's quite a thing, quite a, an offering, really. And, well, and, maybe, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this is this is a concept. This is a concept that extends all the way back to the Paleolithic, yeah, and yeah. into Mesolithic times, and then the curative, perhaps the curative powers of the springs and additional fertility and animal symbolism. I suppose that there's some kind of a continuity in there that one could uh, develop a hypothesis about. Um, yeah. Have you have you uh, generated any hypotheses at this point? Are you still sort of gathering data? Um, well, I know you're going to keep. Keep doing yeah, it. we're Go still ahead. gathering data because if you think about it, the, ne- the Neolithic pools that we've got, they're like mirror pools. They're the great rectangular pools. One of them is filled with spring water all year round. And within the spring water pool is like a little seat thing laid out of stone that you sit in. You can just about sit in them. And they've got overflow drains, stone cap drains that link together so they're into a kind of a V. And then they go off into the stream, and there's one that only fills in midwinter, about the winter solstice. A spring comes into the back of it, and that that fills, and it's next to the one that's always full. So we've got some kind of ritual thing going on here from the, the Stone Age, from 6,000 years ago. So you know, it does seem to be that this valley has been an important, maybe fertility place since. And well, and since a curative man, place. Woman walked here. <laughs> Right, and it's a curative place and one that's that's probably yeah. very well and tightly associated with positive thinking and generation of life and perpetuation of, of symbolism associated with those very, very positive concepts. Um, yeah, because, I mean, all these healers that come to the water, they get to all their patients and, and they say, really good with the water. It's, it's very nice water too. It's, it's the only water I've got. It's sort of almost like sweet water. It's, it's very, tastes really good. And what about the temperature of the water? It's always cold. 
icicle, and it comes up in little geysers, and I've got about half a mile of stream that borders this, and the whole thing is all spring line under the peat. So the, so the spring is actually sort of the spring that the stream itself only comes up out of the ground about half a mile away. So it's and of course, pure water. And of course, the peat is a source of life and generation of flora as well. So it, it's yeah. a life-giving element of it all as well. Well, this is fascinating and very, very intriguing stuff. Why don't you uh, give us a website where people can read a little bit more about this as we draw to a close here? Yes, if you um, go to sort of um, archaeologyonline.org or, or just type in Soviet Water Archaeology, and you come to my website, and there's lots of pictures of the pits. And actually, um, you could actually go onto YouTube and actually, or onto my website and see the a video of me excavating the um, the last pit, which was the 1970s pit. So I actually I videoed the, that real time, so you can actually see me as I actually excavated it and found the baby twine. <laughs> and and for the YouTube video, we would type in your name? Yeah, you put in Saviot Water and it will come up. Very good. Okay, thank you so much for this wonderful program and this very, okay. very provocative... And if anybody wants to come on a big holiday, they're very welcome. The booking forms on the website. You can come and oh, very good. And do a bit of digging. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Jackie Wood, and we That's will be okay. back again next week with another episode of Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And thank you so much. See you next time. Okay. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.